This is Shiva Raman from Johns Hopkins University. So over the course of this lecture, we're going to talk a little bit about inflammatory non-neoplastic disorders of the small bowel. Now we'll begin with a very brief discussion of technique and protocol design, and specifically how we perform enterography studies at Johns Hopkins. But we'll spend the majority of this lecture really breaking down into detail three broad categories of small bowel inflammation. We'll begin by talking about infections, which I think are, at the end of the day, the most common inflammatory disorder that we see in clinical practice, certainly in the ER setting. Then we'll talk about a number of vascular disorders, which are far less common, the type of things you see maybe a couple of times a year, but nevertheless are critical to recognize because of their associated morbidity and mortality. And then finally, we'll end by inf talking about inflammatory bowel disease, which is, of course, Crohn's disease when you're talking about the small bowel. Now, I think it's worth beginning by talking a little bit about the fact that there really is no perfect modality for evaluating the small bowel. Yes, capsule endoscopy is certainly in vogue for visualizing the entirety of the small bowel, and it's being done more and more often by gastroenterologists. But at the end of the day, it is relatively insensitive, and I've seen many cases where there's blatant abnormalities on a CT scan, but they're missed by the capsule endoscopy. There are certain forms of endoscopy that can get slightly further into the small bowel than you'd expect, but still, traditional endoscopy is highly limited in terms of its evaluation of the small bowel, and certainly, the vast majority of the small bowel is going to be off-limits. Now, in the radiology community, we're all familiar with fluoroscopic small bowel follow-throughs and entroclysis, and I think we all realize that these are time-consuming exams, they are relatively insensitive, and certainly, they're limited mostly to evaluation of the mucosal surface of the bowel. Now, on top of that, as every year passes, fewer and fewer of us really feel comfortable doing these studies at a high level. So putting all that together, I would argue that CT enterography really is the best available modality for the evaluation of the small bowel, and I think if you use good technique, you're going to be able to catch quite a few things. Now, how do we do these studies at Johns Hopkins? Now, first of all, I think it's important that the patient does not ingest anything for at least four to six hours prior to the study. You don't want some food or particulate material potentially mimicking a mass or other pathology. Now, I think it goes without saying, but I, I just want to stress the point that you never want to use a positive oral contrast agent. Using barium or some other positive agent is going to make your study uninterpretable. Anything white is going to obscure a subtle mass or a subtle nodule, and of course, that dense white contrast is going to give you beam-hardening artifact and streak artifact that potentially are going to mitigate or prevent you from accurately evaluating the bowel wall in terms of thickening and abnormal enhancement. Really, you want to be using a neutral agent, and your options are going to be water, polyethylene glycol, and volumen. Now, water and polyethylene glycol are not bad, but they don't give you great distension. They're rapidly going to be absorbed. And I think at the end of the day, I think most people would agree nowadays that volumen is going to be the best possible option. 0.1% weight per volume barium sulfate. It's relatively low density, somewhere in the order of about 15 to 20 Hounsfield units. So you're not going to get streak. You're not going to get beam hardening. And you're going to get a really good look at the small bowel wall, both in terms of thickening and abnormal enhancement. Just as importantly as any of you who listen to our lectures are well aware of, we put a lot of stress on 3D imaging, post-processing, and using barium or other positive agents will interfere with your 3D post-processing algorithms, and that's not a problem you're going to have with volumen. Now, if you look at the literature, there are literally dozens of different protocols in terms of administering oral contrast agents. I'm not going to say that ours is the only way to do it, but having worked at Hopkins for a few years now, I will tell you that we've had a lot of success with this protocol. We get consistently good results, we get great distension of the bowel on virtually every one of our studies, 
And I would highly recommend this protocol option if you're looking for an option in your own practice. We give Volumen 450 cc's at 60, 40, and 20 minutes prior to the scan. And then we give about a half liter of water immediately prior to the patient getting on the table. Now, this does a couple of things. Giving those three boluses of Volumen makes sure that you get good distension of the proximal, mid, and distal small bowel. So your entirety of the small bowel is going to be well distended, and you're going to get a little bit of contrast in the proximal colon as well. But giving that water right before the study gives you great distension of the stomach and duodenum, which are perpetually under-distended portions of the GI tract in many of the enterography studies that I see coming in from outside hospitals. Now, I strongly recommend utilizing dual-phase technique. We acquire arterial and venous phase images at fixed delays, 25 to 30 seconds, and 50 to 60 seconds after the injection of IV contrast. Now, having those two phases really maximizes your sensitivity for a number of different pathologic entities. You get a great look at the vasculature. You maximize your chances of picking up subtle bowel wall thickening or bowel wall hyperemia. And you're going to catch both hypervascular and hypovascular bowel tumors. As far as I'm concerned, having those two phases really maximizes the chances that you're not going to miss something significant. Now, if you look at the older literature, people at one point were giving medications quite frequently, whether it was metoclopramide to stimulate gastric emptying or glucagon to reduce small bowel peristalsis. Now, I would argue that if you have good protocol design, good technique, giving these medications is not actually necessary. We certainly don't give medications at Johns Hopkins. On top of that, it slows down your workflow. It creates another layer of confusion for your technologists and your nurses. And I just think it's unnecessary. So if you're giving these medications, I guess that's fine, but I really don't think it's necessary in this day and age. Now, now that we've talked a little bit about protocol design, why don't we move on to our first major category of small bowel inflammation, and we'll talk a little bit about infections. Now, in a day-to-day practice, I would argue that small bowel infections are the most common cause of small bowel wall thickening, and that's certainly going to be the case when you're talking about the ER setting. Small bowel infections are a relatively common cause of diarrheal illness in the United States, and it goes without saying that the vast majority of these infections are never going to be imaged with a CT scan, right? Most of us, we get diarrhea, we have a little bit of abdominal pain, we're going to stay at home, take a day off from work, but we're not going to get a CT scan. Most of the time, when you're imaging a patient with a small bowel infection, they're immunocompromised, they're in the hospital, they have HIV, maybe they're ill from some other reason, they have other comorbidities. So these patients tend not to just be a run-of-the-mill small bowel infections that we're imaging with a CT scan. Now, small bowel infectious enteritis can be viral, bacterial, or protozoa, and there are literally 20 to 30 different organisms that we frequently see in our day-to-day clinical practice. And unfortunately, the CT findings are not specific for any given pathogen, so you can't predict based on the wall thickening, hyperemia, inflammation, and ascites what organism you're dealing with. And in fact, the same organism in different people with varying degrees of infection or severity can look very different from patient to patient. Now, I will say that regardless of what organism you're looking at, it is the case that the bowel wall should enhance normally in any infection, right? You shouldn't see bowel wall hypoenhancement. And if you see that, you should be worrying about the fact that it's not just maybe a run-of-the-mill infection, but perhaps you're dealing with bowel ischemia. But the one exception to that that I would point out is CMV enteritis in patients who have underlying immunocompromise, especially HIV. 
Now, CMV enteritis is the one form of infection that can cause diffuse bowel wall and mucosal hypoenhancement and, for all practical purposes, can mimic ischemia in terms of its CT appearance. So if you see something that looks like bowel ischemia in a patient who's immunocompromised or HIV positive, yes, you're probably dealing with ischemia, but you at least have to consider the possibility of CMV enteritis. Now, I said earlier that you can't predict the organism based on the appearance on CT. But I will say that that's not 100% true because the distribution of small bowel involvement can be at least suggestive of a specific organism. As we all know from doing fluoroscopy, Giardia tends to involve the proximal small bowel in the left upper quadrant. And if you see involvement of the distal small bowel in the cecum, you have to think about a relatively small group of organisms, TB, Salmonella, Yersinia, Shigella, Campylobacter, and even Typhoid. Now, I would argue that regardless of who you're imaging and the risk factors, if I see small bowel wall thickening, infection is going to be somewhere on my differential diagnosis, and it's going to go to the top of my differential diagnosis if the patient is immunocompromised or HIV positive. And in those patient subgroups, you're probably dealing with a patient who has an opportunistic infection, things like MAI, CMV, or cryptosporidum. Patients with HIV or AIDS don't Usually, when they get a small bowel enteritis, it's something weird. It's not your run-of-the-mill infection. Now, another form of infection that I just want to point out, because I think a lot of people are not familiar with it, is C. difficile enteritis. Now, we're all familiar with Clostridium difficile colitis, right? These are patients who have recently received antibiotics, they're on chemotherapy, and a few weeks later, they get super infection with C. difficile, and they get horrible-looking colon. Lots of fat stranding, edema, ascites, and massive bowel wall thickening, often with this accordion-like morphology. But what people don't realize is that the same patient population can get infection by C. difficile of the small bowel as well. So C. difficile enteritis is not at all that uncommon. It tends to be underdiagnosed because we, at least in the radiology community, are not aware of it as an entity. But it looks very similar. Horrible-looking bowel, lots of edema, stranding, and ascites in the mesentery. So here's an example of that. This is a patient who's recently been on chemotherapy. They developed a small bowel infection. Stool samples came back positive for C. difficile. And you can see that it's a nonspecific but relatively severe enteritis, right? Lots of bowel wall thickening, lots of edema, stranding, and ascites in the mesentery. Now, when you're dealing with a patient who has HIV or AIDS, you're thinking about different organisms. Here's a patient with HIV who has horrible-looking bowel, right? Lots of ascites. The bowel is diffusely thickened. It's somewhat hyper-enhancing. This could be any one of maybe four or five different pathologic entities. But this turned out to be chronic mycobacterium avium, which we've seen a few cases of recently at Johns Hopkins. Here's another patient who's immunocompromised, again with HIV-AIDS. Notice in this case, the organism distri the distribution of disease is going to be suggestive of the organism. You see thickening of the cecum, which has this cone-like morphology, and there's associated thickening of the distal small bowel. So you know that you're probably dealing with one of five or six different entities. And in this case, given the patient's immunocompromised, it wasn't difficult to predict that this was going to be tuberculosis, and the patient actually had pulmonary infection as well. Here's a patient who's not immunocompromised, but again, the distribution of disease allows you to predict what the organism might be. This is a patient who was a business traveler, had gone abroad, and came back with traveler's diarrhea. And you can see again that it's the same distribution, thickening of the cecum, thickening of the distal small bowel. And as you can imagine, this turned out to be typhoid. Not a common diagnosis, but the distribution might at least have allowed you to make an educated guess. Now, why don't we stop there? And when we come back, we'll talk about our second major category of small bowel inflammation, and, dis and we'll discuss vascular disorders of the small bowel. So until next time, I'll see you later. This is Shivaram. Bye.